Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Elliot Forrest, and this is a WQXR Cafe Concert. A couple of years ago, the New York Times wrote, If any artists were destined to collaborate, it was surely this pair. They're cellist Matt Heimovitz and pianist Christopher O'Reilly. I'll speak with Matt and Chris in a moment and find out why. But first, here are three performances by the duo. The first and third movements from Beethoven's Sonata for Cello and Piano, Opus 102, and the Andante of Rachmaninoff's Cello Sonata. Thank you. 
You've been listening to cellist Matt Heimovitz and pianist Christopher O'Reilly playing music of Beethoven, and in the middle, Rachmaninoff. Both artists have veered away from the straight and narrow career path, sometimes by appearing in non-traditional settings like nightclubs and bars and by playing pop songs along with classical works. Matt and Chris have just collaborated on their second album together called Beethoven, period. Welcome. It's good to see you both. Thank you, Elliot. Good to be Great here. to see you. Beautiful performances. Now, when you just played, you played on our regular piano and I'm guessing a kind of regular cello, but the album, it's different. Tell us what you play on. Well, here, I, it's the same cello, but it's a different setup. So on the album, I have ox gut strings and an early, early tailpiece from the early 19th century. Today, I have metal strings and and uh it's it's the modern the modern setup a lot louder than the than the gut strings and chris of course i've got uh, on beethoven period we're uh, recording on an 1823 original uh john broadwood fortepiano uh, an extraordinary instrument the unicorda pedal of it had such character that Matt was threatening to play some passages ponticello just to <laughs> compete with the with the idiosyncrasies of the fortepiano so the uh, the little joke in Beethoven period is period instruments. Mm-hmm. It, why was that important to you for this album? Well, we we just kind of came upon you know as as we do you know we we have very wide ranging tastes and we were invited to come to uh, the Beethoven International Festival in Chicago. They found a forte piano for us, and uh, Matt uh, coincidentally found a, a Beethoven era cello. So he strung that with gut strings and. We went at it and uh, found that this was really quite a, an extraordinary and revolutionary sort of way of hearing these pieces uh, before we even got our hands around, you know, making our, you know, interpretive stamp on, on the pieces. It's just a different sound. It was a revelation. When, when we did that, all of a sudden the relationship between the cello and the piano is completely different. And no longer am I trying to simply project over the grander of of a Steinway grand, but I'm actually having to make room. I can I can actually cover the the piano at the drop of a hat. So all of a sudden I'm having to make room for what is important in the in, in the piano part. And so all of a sudden the dialogue, the, the conversation that takes place between cellist and pianist is, is just a completely different animal and it's that's what Beethoven was dealing with at the time. Sounds like it was different for both of you, but for the audience, what should they listen for? Is it just dynamic levels or is it more than that? It's the transparency. It's hearing, uh, I mean, in the late sonatas, you know, he went back to being influenced by Bach and, and Handel. Those were his favorite composers. And so there's, there's you know, a lot of counterpoint. And so you start to hear things in a way. Also, also I would say the articulation, the, the general sound production is much closer to Baroque times in a way than it is to modern times. And so the way we articulate a phrase, the way we shape a phrase or speak this language is quite different on, on those instruments. It makes for a, a, a great deal more expressivity, really. I, I liken it to Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic, actually, when the bad ship steward has handcuffed him to some railing and you see the water rising up to his chin. That's that's mostly, you know, what a soloist feels when you're playing with an orchestra. <laughs> that you're, you're barely able to breathe. And so imagine uh, if all of a sudden I'm Leo... I'm drowning here. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, imagine if Leo had, you know, water just up to his, you know, breastbone or something. You have a great deal more... <laughs> it wouldn't have been as good a movie. Right, true. But, it, but you have a lot more leeway in terms of expressivity and, and color, just even in the sense of one note having a shape to it. 
Were there any challenges? It sounds like it was mostly fun, but were there any challenges using yeah. these period instruments? Keeping them in tune. Yeah. They constantly change. Well, I, I thought I was the one that would have the trouble because, you know, the, the gut strings stretch more, and so it takes longer to kind of get adjusted. But actually, we spent most of the recording session waiting for Chris's keyboard to get tuned. I got to say, though, but I mean, this, this 1823 instrument, nearly 200 years old, and I don't know how many times you've been at recording sessions, but, you know, so often, you know, the producer will come on and say, oh, well, there was a damper noise or the pedal squeaked or something. No, not a noise out mm-hmm. of this instrument. It was perfect. Did you feel like you had a, a a new window into the world of Beethoven, hearing mm-hmm. it maybe the way he heard it? I'm seeing nods from both of you. Yeah. Definitely. As I said before, it was a revelation to, to me personally, and I think to Chris also. I mean, it was it just seemed to breathe in a way that that was felt very authentic and and engaged with what Beethoven was trying to do at that time. You didn't have to bend over backwards to make a subito piano. It just you know happened in time, and it wasn't like putting the brakes on a you know. 30-year-old Lincoln Continental, you know. <laughs> Do you know the actual drama or what was going on in his own personal life during this particular time period when these compositions were made? It's an incredible trajectory to hear these these five, or to think of these five sonatas as a whole, because he, he really returned to this format over three very distinct periods in his life, and starting when he was, you know, before he had written a symphony, before he had written a string quartet, um, he was making a name for himself. He went out on tour. From He was living in Vienna. He went before out, any of the symphonies, these come. Before any of the symphonies. And yeah. he, he, he was in Berlin. And it just turns out that the king of Prussia was an amateur cellist and had wonderful cellists around him. And he had one of the great cellists of all time, probably, Jean-Louis Dupont. One of the Dupont brothers was there. And when Beethoven heard Jean-Louis Dupont, he said, you know, we've got to play together. And so he, he wrote these two early early sonatas and the two sets of variations at that time for the king and for Jean-Louis Dupont and Beethoven to play together. And, and uh, that's how it started. And then, and then he returned to the format, to the cello and piano genre, uh, in the middle of his fifth symphony. So if you can imagine that he's, he's writing the fifth symphony and he just decides to take a little break before he completes it and writes Opus 69, a little ditty, you know, one of the, like the seminal sonata for, for cello and piano, and then returns completes the Fifth Symphony. And, and he's and starting on. to go deaf during Symphony 2, so most of his oh, hearing... Oh, he's, he's probably, yeah, he's probably lost a lot of his hearing by that, by that point. And then, after this heroic period, or the, the middle period, he starts to have a crisis, a personal crisis. He writes the, the Immortal Beloved letter and sort of gives up on the idea that he's going to find his soulmate. And also is kind of writing a few second-rate works and and uh, and then from that he sort of emerges with the two late uh, sonatas for cello and piano the opus 102s which we've just played that offers sort of a window into his late period into a very personal style where he's deconstructing all of the ideas of the enlightenment and what he inherited from Haydn and Mozart and really finding his own voice completely and with the infusion and, and inspiration of Bach and Handel and, and the earlier composers. And this seems like it's a fun part, in addition to being a musician, part archaeologist and historian. Is that just as much fun for you, Chris? Absolutely. You know, and we, we have the uh, the new editions, the, the Baron Rider editions for the sonatas, and there were lots of uh, articulation and, and dynamic markings that uh, we were able to bring to life. Have you heard from the period instrument community? It seems to be a voting block of. Uh... They're, they're not returning my calls. I don't know. I don't know what it is. No. <laughs> what do they think of this album? You haven't heard from anybody. No, I, I mean we, we're getting really incredible feedback for this for this album. I mean it's just it's gotten some wonderful reviews and and it you know I I think 
in classical music, you know, we, we get very factionalized, you know, and specialized. You know, the period folks have their terrain and, and we have ours. And Chris and I don't subscribe to that no. kind of music making. You and, keep moving. And, well, yeah. we keep moving, but You're also whatever we're passionate targets. about. <laughs> whatever we're passionate about in the moment, we, we want to get our hands on and, and, and get involved with. And most of most yeah. of uh, the, the really inspiring musicians that, that I draw from for this project and for other projects are people like Jordi Saval and, and folks from the period instrument revival. Uh, Gustav, uh, no, Gustav Leonhardt, of course. Nicholas Harnoncourt is one of my favorite musicians of all time. So, yeah, I, I, I do glean a lot from, from those folks. Uh, your last album together, 2012, Shuffle, Play, Listen, a collection of songs of uh, Janáček, Martinu, and you reworked some uh, rock songs as well, uh, particularly Radiohead, the Cocteau Twins, and Arcade Fire, which uh, who have just taken off uh, since uh, that time period as well. Still doing that kind of material? You like a little bit of each? We're in the middle of a project now. Uh, John Carigliano uh, did a set of Bob Dylan lyrics, you know, sort of resetting them. Uh, not knowing the original songs and taking the lyrics and making new songs out of them. Huh. And so we have a handful of pop songs that are being reset by modern composers. Actually, John, prominent among them, uh, we did Joni Mitchell's uh, The Wolf That Lives in Lindsay from her Mingus album, and John did a setting of that. And I'm making arrangements for Matt and me of the originals, and then the composers are, are making their uh, their new Versions. We have so, some incredible so, composers involved: yeah. Aaron J. Kernis, Philip Glass. Philip um, Glass resetting the Velvet Underground. I mean, please, amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Gunther yeah, Gunther Schuler doing Guided by Voices. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, looking forward to it. Oh, Conrad Tao doing Gabriel Kahane. How, how about that? And, and different places. I was recalling as I came in today. I think one of the very first times I ever saw you, Matt, you played the Knitting Factory. And if you remember that concert where there was a, I think it was a Battle of the Bands going on. Downstairs. Was it a solo or I played there a couple times? Was it? Was I it think it was the, a was solo thing, and it was solo. A, it was like, <laughs> oh yes, 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 yeah, yeah. It was a goulash tour. Yeah, you were playing bar talk and, and Ligeti string quartet, right? <laughs> and like at the knitting quartet, factory, yeah. there was a bat. A bat. That's right. But That's you right. were undeterred. <laughs> yeah, still around. Still, still survived that. You like going to different places, though. I do. I do. I mean, that that was pretty extreme. Uh, there was another venue like that, TT the Bears in Boston. That was the Battle of the Mans, uh, and, and I, you know, I thought there were two or three hundred people there, sitting shoulder to shoulder. And I just thought, what have I done to bring all these people to this place? You know, where you can barely hear what's going on stage. But somehow it became white noise, and people focused, and nobody left, and and you know, you survive. The anachronistic uh, possibilities of performance are are really enhanced uh, in the modern era. We actually played at the where was that place we? played in Seattle, the, uh, Tractor Tavern. the Tractor Tavern, and we actually had a beautiful fortepiano reproduction and uh, a, a complete, completely acoustic-free zone. This, you know, It's basically a club, low ceilings and everything, 250 wrapped audience members, and a fantastic sound man. So you didn't have to worry about getting the sound into all the nooks and crannies. And a bar? And, could people drink? Bar? Yeah, absolutely. See, that's, that's the mix. I yeah. mean, if you can drink <laughs> while you're listening, yeah. I think that's the yeah. best combination. Or recording Beethoven period with our iPads for music at Skywalker Ranch. You know? So these are, these are the meetings yeah. of the uh, worlds and times. I can't have you here, Chris, without congratulating you on 15 years uh, from the top. Uh, for those who don't know, and I think you probably have to be under a rock, you've been a part of a show that has introduced us to so many great 
talented young people. And, and I've seen pictures of them. You know, I hear the show, and then I see the pictures, and some of them are like a foot and a half tall. I mean, these, are, in some cases, are very tiny, very young people. It must be gratifying for you to, 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 to be a part of this program. Quite. Uh, Sean Chen, one of our alums, just won a $100,000 Annenberg Award. Uh, we had a, a girl playing the... Uh, the flight of the bumblebee on the tuba in a bumblebee costume, who is now <laughs> the principal tubist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. We had uh, Kevin Alusula, who played cello on the show and is now the beatboxing bottom of the pentatonics. So Lauren Shipman, who was a violist on the show and is now uh, part of the rentals. Uh, the kids are doing all kinds of great things. And uh, and I follow you both on Facebook, but uh, Chris, you're pretty active on Facebook, both music and uh, and politics. Is that a is that a passion of yours? Actually, no. I, I I stay out of politics. I mean, I'm an NPR host, so I can't really comment. <laughs> I, I see the phrase a lot. He seems nice. Well, I, I think you know, rather than you know, say something that my 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 bosses at NPR would you know look askance at. It's it's good to resort to you know dating speak. You know, he seems nice. He seems nice. Yeah. Uh, thank you both for being here, Christopher O'Reilly, Matt Humber. It's always great to see you. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks. Great to be here.